You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. If you would, please join with me in turning to Matthew chapter 14. Let's look at verse 22. We'll read down to verse 36. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. And after he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already many stadia away from the land, being battered by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Now when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered and said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. And getting out of the boat, Peter walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened, and beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are truly God's son. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they went, they sent word into all that surrounding district and brought to him all who were sick. And they were pleading with him that they might just touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were cured. Let's go to our God together for prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your perfect faithfulness and love toward us, your people. You have made us your people, even as we've heard this morning in two tremendously encouraging testimonies, as we've been encouraged by witnessing the baptisms of of two who have put their faith in Christ. Lord, you are the explanation for our repentance and our faith, our new natures, our love for you, our love for each other, our love for your word, our desire to please you. Lord, you have made us your people. And now as we turn our attention to your word, I thank you that your work transcends the vessels that you use. In our weakness, your power is put on display. In our inability, your ability is put on display. So Lord, would you make use of this weak vessel this morning, a weak voice, and would you, despite that, allow the content of the sermon, the truthfulness of your word to to shine forth in a way that people's lives are blessed and challenged and changed. And we will give you thanks for what you do. In Jesus' name, amen. 
One of the things that I always have been amazed by, both in Scripture and in the world, thinking now about the events that take place in the world, thinking about history, I've always had a love for history. One of the things that's always amazed me is an amazing symmetry that is often on display, almost a, a cyclical way in which the truth of God and the ways of God are put on display. You see this in Scripture. You see this throughout history, how things tend to return. It's something different, but it's something similar. And in that way, truth is underscored and lessons are driven home. I think about that as we come to our verses this morning because the lessons we're going to see here in many ways are the same lessons we learned back in Matthew chapter 8. If you would just look for a moment to Matthew 8, I want you to see this with me. Matthew 8 beginning at verse 18. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. Verse 19, a scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and Birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes too, Demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. In Matthew chapter 8, you have Jesus and his disciples departing from a great crowd. The miracle that he performs, he performs on the sea. The power on display is power over creation. After the disciples see the miracle, they voice their wonder at what they've seen. And immediately after the miracle on the other side of the sea, Jesus meets again with need. And there's more ministry and there's more evidence of who he is. When we arrive at the 22nd verse of Matthew 14, what do you have? The place of departure, the multitudes that he's just miraculously fed, the miracle he performs on the sea, the power on display, the power over creation. And then immediately on the other side of the miracle, Jesus meets with people who have great need and he ministers to them. And once again, you see more evidence of who he is. Do you see the symmetry, the, the, the likeness in these two miracles? But a couple of elements are different. One, in the first miracle, Jesus speaks to the elements and they obey him. In the second miracle, he treads on the elements. In the midst of that great storm, he's walking on the water. And the second difference is in the first miracle, 
the disciples voice their wonder. In the second miracle, the disciples voice their worship. For the first time in the Gospel of Matthew, the disciples of Jesus confess that he is the Son of God. This is what we're meant to see. This is what Matthew wants us to see, that Jesus of Nazareth was and is the Son of God. And he's teaching us lessons not only about who Jesus is, but also about who we are, because on display in this text that we'll study for the next two Sundays is not just the unmistakable evidence of the deity of Jesus, but also the unmistakable evidence that you and I are slow to learn and how patient the Lord Jesus is to teach us and how faithful God is to make sure that we don't miss the lessons. So in this narrative, we're going to look at Jesus presented to us as the Son of God in four parts. This morning, we'll look at the first part. Next Sunday, we'll look at the other three. The first thing I want you to recognize with me this morning is this. A Christ we have on display here is a Christ-arranged test of faith. A Christ-arranged test of the disciples' faith. Looking at verse 22, immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. And after he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already many stadia away from the land, being battered by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Now when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and they said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. After our Lord feeds the multitude, he insists that the disciples leave him. Verse 22, he made the disciples get into the boat. And when you examine not just this passage, but but Mark's account of it and John's account of it, it's obvious why he wants them to leave, why he dismisses the crowds. First of all, he wanted to be alone to pray. That's obvious because that's what he goes on to do. Goes up onto the mountain by himself to pray. Mark 6.46 says that after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. So he immediately goes to pray. He wants the disciples to get rest. This is something we don't need to miss. This is something people need. This is why a holiday week like we've just enjoyed is important for all of us. People need rest. Mark 6.31, and he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. So he sends them away, loving his men, caring for his disciples. Go and get some rest. He also, John tells us this, he wanted to diffuse the situation because after he fed the multitude, they wanted to take him by force and make him king. 
And this is not the way Jesus is going to be made king. Not by the will of man, but by the will of his Father. And not being carried on the shoulders of ignorant followers who love him, not for who he is, but for what they got from him. But rather, it is by giving his life on a cross to save his people from their sins. It is by the way of a cross that Jesus will arrive in his kingdom. John 6.15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So he goes to pray. His disciples need rest. He diffuses a situation where a misunderstanding crowd is trying to force him to become king. But there's another reason that is what we see in our verses. There's a lesson that our Lord knows his disciples are meant to learn. They don't want to leave him. This is why it says he made them get into the boat. Anakazo is the word to compel someone to act in a particular manner. Compel, force, a milder way it can be translated, urge upon, press upon, strongly urge. They don't want to leave him, but he insists that they get into this boat and he sees them off and he insists that the crowds disperse. Jesus sends everybody away. The disciples leave by the way of the Sea of Galilee, making their way, if you can see it on a map, on the northern end, they make their way to the western side, about four or five miles across from one side to the other. Puts, puts them in the boat, so to speak. They go away. Jesus goes up on the mountain to pray. Interesting, in a miracle where his deity is going to be so clearly perceived, we also see his real humanity because he goes to seek his father's face in prayer. Jesus, the man, has need to pray. This is the dismissal. This is the sending away of the disciples. Jesus is alone, but they're not alone for very long. They meet with a visitor in the form of a storm. Verse 24, but the boat was already many stadia away from the land, being battered by the waves, for the wind was against them. He sends them away at evening, the Bible says. And when it was evening, he was there alone, but the boat was already many stadia away from the land. So if you say the evening's about eight o'clock when Jesus is praying, the boat has already made much progress. So they've been sent away earlier. And now they're in the midst of a storm. By the way, a stadia is about 607 feet. John tells us they may have been two to three miles out already, being battered by this storm. Basanizo is the word, to torture, to torment, to harass. I mean, this boat is being beaten severely by the wind and by the waves. They're not making much progress anymore because the wind is against them, stuck out on the water, can't proceed, working, rowing, can't get anywhere. These are seasoned fishermen in many cases. So these are men who've had experience with storms, but they're troubled. Let me give you an observation. Difficult circumstances are not always the result of disobedience. 
This is one of the ways we see that we still battle with a works righteousness mentality. When things are going well in our lives, we tend to think it's somehow the result of our performance. I mean, the Lord must be pleased with me. I must be doing well. I'm I'm talking now to believers. People who know that you're not saved by works, you're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You know that Christ had to die on the cross to make you right with God. His death, his blood washed away your sins. His righteousness is now your gift. You stand before God, not in your own merit, but in his merit. So you know the gospel. And yet even knowing the gospel, when things are going well, we tend to think, well, I must be doing okay. And conversely, when things get really difficult, not only do we begin to wonder, but if it's a public difficulty, others begin to wonder. I wonder what's going on. I wonder what you've done wrong. I wonder what I've done wrong. Lord, what are you wanting to teach me? What needs to be corrected in my life? So I just want to remind you of something. Jesus put these men in the boat. Jesus sent these men away. They didn't want to go. They obeyed him. They are on the water by virtue of their obedience. They're not in the middle of a storm. They're not in the middle of difficulty because they've disobeyed. They're in the middle of difficulty because they've obeyed. Take that into your heart and remember it. Difficult circumstances are not always. They can be due to our disobedience, but they're not always due to disobedience. Sometimes Jesus sends you into difficult circumstances. So we see their dismissal and we see their trouble. Now notice Jesus' arrival. Verse 25, and in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. I'm a bit um, struck by the fact that Matthew describes this in such matter-of-fact terms. He came to them walking on the sea, of course. Who hasn't seen that before? It's amazing, isn't it? He came to them walking on the sea. By the way, it says he came to them in the fourth watch of the night. He's described as being alone. There are many stadia away at evening time. Jesus arrives at the scene of their trouble between 3 and 6 a.m., The Romans had divided the night into four watches, had to do with the military changing of guards. And roughly speaking, the change of the guards would be at nine at night, midnight, three o'clock in the morning, six o'clock in the morning. Originally, the Jews divided into three watches, but the Romans had four watches, four parts. So between three and six in the morning is when Jesus would have arrived. That puts them on the water at the minimum six hours maybe as many as nine hours. So they've been laboring on the water for a long, long time when Jesus shows up. Second observation, not only does God send us sometimes into difficult circumstances, sometimes he leaves us there a while. This is another way that we think about it, isn't it? Why does this keep going on? Why hasn't it ended? Lord, you know how hard it is. You know how 
afraid I am, or you know how exhausted I am, or you know how anxious I feel, how troubled I am. Why hasn't this ended? And we sometimes associate that with disobedience. Maybe it hasn't ended because I'm not obedient. Well, that can be true. Again, you can know difficult circumstances because of your disobedience, and you can know extended difficult circumstances because of your disobedience, but it's not always the case. God's people can know really difficult times for a really long time and be right in the center of God's will. Why does the Lord do that? Well, because He knows the circumstances we need to learn the lessons He means for us to learn. Sometimes the backdrop has to be really dark to recognize the light we're going to receive. Sometimes we have to be taught what we can't handle to know that only He can handle it. We have to be brought to the end of ourselves to receive the help that He offers. But they've been out on that water a long time. Notice a few things with me about His arrival to them. First of all, His arrival is supernatural. Walking on the sea unparalleled in human history, never seen before, never seen since. Who does that? Who walks on the water? The Bible answers that question. According to Scripture, there's only one who does that. God does that. God does that. By the way, when people claim to know the Bible and they say Jesus never really claimed to be God, this is something that people made up about, or whatever they say, they reveal they've not read the Bible carefully because not only does Jesus claim to be God in his own voice with his own words, but what he does makes unmistakable who he is. Who was Jesus of Nazareth? He was no one less than God in human flesh. The eternal son of God who had taken to himself an additional nature, born of a virgin, came into the earth to save us from our sins so that God was with us. And this scene makes clear that God was with us. In Job chapter 9, verse 8, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, reads this way. This is one translation of the Septuagint. Job 9, verse 8. Job is describing the uniqueness of God, the futility of arguing with him and battling with him, And as Job describes the uniqueness of God, he describes God this way, verse 8, who stretched out the sky alone and walks upon the sea as upon a floor. That's the translation. And the word translated floor is edifice. And the standard lexicon has this for that word, the surface of the earth, the ground. So the floor of something, of course, you could be translated floor, the floor of something but it can also be translated the earth or the ground. The idea being who walks on water as if it is the ground? Who walks on the water as if it is the earth? The answer, the creator of the sea can walk upon the sea as if it is the earth. It makes no difference to him. He has no more trouble walking on the water than he does walking on the floor. The Spirit of God through Matthew and Mark and John, as they described this scene, 
I'm convinced, he wants us to think about Job 9. Because in Mark's account, he adds an additional, very curious note. Mark 6.48, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And then Mark adds this, he meant to pass by them. He meant to pass by them. Well, he didn't pass by them. They saw him. Why would you record that? Interesting enough, in Job 9, three verses after what I read to you a moment ago, you read this about God, Job 9 verse 11. Were he to pass by me, I would not see him. Were he to move past me, I would not perceive him. Again, I believe the Spirit of God wants us to connect what we're seeing with the Old Testament account of the uniqueness of Almighty God so that we might see that what the disciples are going to confess later. You're the Son of God. You're God with us. And by the way, that idea, were he to pass by me, I would not see him. Were he to move past me, I would not perceive him. The idea being the only way this God can ever be known, perceived, seen is if he's willing to make himself known to you. Such is the nature of God that you don't know him unless he reveals himself to you. Such is our nature that we could never know our creator if he didn't reveal himself to us. Why are the disciples going to recognize who Jesus is? Because Jesus is going to make himself known to them. Even when they see him, they don't recognize him. If he had just passed by them, they would have never perceived him. He had to make himself known to them. So he comes to them supernaturally. He comes to them as only God could have come to them walking on the water. How do they receive him? They receive him fearfully. Verse 25, and in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Now when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. They thought they were seeing a phantom. Why? I mean, why would you think you're seeing a ghost? Well, let me give you three pretty safe suggestions why they would have been afraid, terrified. First of all, they don't recognize him. Got to remember, it's dark, three, six in the morning, right? In that window of time, at best, the sun is just beginning to come up and they're in the middle of a storm. So the wind is fierce, the water beating that boat to death. There's no way they would have been able to see him clearly. So whatever they're seeing is somewhat obscured to their sight, they don't recognize him. And even if he had clearly been perceived, they're seeing something no man has ever seen before. Something that would have seemed to them impossible. Who expects to see Jesus walking on the water? Who has ever seen a man walking on the water? You're two to three miles out into this great body of water, and a man is going to come walking to you on the water? So they didn't have a category in their mind for this. Even if they had seen him, they wouldn't have known. They wouldn't have been. How do you put that into your mind? Why are they terrified? Because if this isn't a man walking on the water, what is it? And what they no doubt thought is this is some sort of supernatural sign that we are doomed. This is a phantom. This is a ghost. This is some sign 
that we are doomed. They are full of fear. The response of Jesus is so comforting, verse 27. But don't miss this word, underscored in your mind. Immediately, Jesus spoke to them saying, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. What is this? This is tender mercy. Frail, weak followers of Jesus in the middle of a difficulty he sent them into. Been there a long time, afraid for their lives, exhausted, and now they see him walking on the water and they don't know who he is. But he doesn't leave them there for long. He responds swiftly, immediately, personally. Tharsete ego eimi. Take courage. Literally, you can translate it, I am. Take courage. I am. Take courage. Do not be afraid. Two commands. One is positive. Be courageous. The other on the negative side, do not be afraid. Choose courage, refuse fear, because I am. Or you could say, and I think it's rightly translated, it is I. I'm here. That is based on his person. It's me. Based on his presence. I'm here. Be courageous. Don't be afraid. What is this? It is a Christ arranged test of their faith, a teaching to their faith, a lesson for their faith. I want to pause here. We'll come back to this next week and pick up the other three points I want to make from this text, but let's just pause for a moment and walk away this morning with some lessons. I'm going to give you three. First of all, I've said this. I want to underscore it. This is a God-ordained plan for the development of Christ's disciples. What is this that we're seeing? It is a God-ordained plan for their development. They're not on the water by accident. He sent them there. They didn't want to go. He insisted. They don't meet with a storm by accident. The same one who can calm the storm with his voice, walk on it with his feet, ended at any moment, was the one who sent them there. So the storm's not by accident. God did not leave them there for as long as they were there, to the point that they were exhausted by accident. The same Jesus who walked out to them in the fourth watch of the night could have walked out to them in the first watch. So their time in the storm is not by accident. He doesn't meet with them in the way that he does by accident. He could have spoken from the mountain, peace be still. And it would have stopped and they would have gotten to the other side and he could have told them about it later if he wanted. Walking on the water was not an accident. All of this is a divinely ordained, orchestrated school. In fact, Mark's account adds a detail that makes this unmistakable. Mark 6.51, listen to what it says. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves. 
but their hearts were hardened. Do you hear what Mark's saying? They had just witnessed him feed thousands of people with a little bit of food. It was a miracle of creation they witnessed, but they didn't understand it. They missed it. So that now they're astounded in a way they should not have been astounded. They're astounded in a way that they would not have been astounded if they had only learned the previous lesson. This is to teach them. And this is a pattern that we see in this section of Matthew. You see the slow developing faith of the disciples. They have faith. It's real faith. But it is slowly developing. And you see the patient teaching ministry of Jesus to his own men. This is not for the crowds. This is for his men. James Montgomery Boyce comments, he says this, Matthew 14 through 16, so chapters 14, 15, 16, is characterized by three important themes. One, Jesus' private teaching of the 12 disciples. Two, repeated failures on the disciples' part to understand or respond to Jesus' teaching. And three, some small glimmerings of true faith and growth. They don't get it. He keeps teaching them. And they begin to get it a little bit. Now, lesson number one, do you know that this is how God's dealing with you? To this day, do you know this is how God is dealing with disciples? Things we should have already learned. We live in ways, think in ways, behave in ways that we demonstrate we have not learned. Should have learned it, but we haven't learned it. We are still slow to learn. Anybody here with me this morning who would agree you are slow to learn? And God knows we don't learn well in comfortable settings. So what does he do? He sends us into uncomfortable settings that we might learn what he knows we are in need of learning and what he is destined for us to learn. But don't miss this, what you're ultimately learning about in all of your lessons is your king. This is what you're meant to learn. You're meant to learn about him. And sadly, we continue to be astounded as God proves his love for us and his faithfulness to us and his care of us, his provisions for us, his holding on to us, his transforming of us. We continue to be astounded because we didn't learn the previous lesson as well as we should have. And so it's like, I can't believe this. Well, what did you think happened last time? And the time before that, and the time before that, and the time before that. And don't act like you don't know what I'm talking about. You know exactly what I'm talking about. You go through some financial issue, and it's like, how are we going to ever make it out of this? And the Lord supplies in ways that made it seem like nothing until you come to the next one. And what do you do? You're locked up in anxiety as if you never saw what you saw just a short time before. Or you go from one kind of test, maybe a financial test, to now it's a health test. Does the same God who controls your provision control your existence? Is he any different? Does he lack any power, ability, love, care, concern for you? Or is he there? Nothing, nothing is without a reason in your life, Christian. Nothing is without a purpose. And ultimately what we're all learning 
this is the schoolhouse. This is what we're meant to learn. This is where it's all going to end. That I may know him. You see? That I may know Christ. These men in this situation are going to learn something about Jesus. That's what we're learning. So lesson number one, this is a God-ordained plan for the development of Christ's disciples. Lesson number two, this is a perfectly regulated plan for the development of Christ's disciples. Perfectly regulated. What do you mean? Well, we've already noted they were in those difficult circumstances on purpose. But as we've also mentioned, they were left in those difficult circumstances until the right time for their deliverance. It wasn't just the location that was determined. It wasn't just the nature of the test that was determined. It is the time they were going to have to endure it. That was also determined. How long, Lord? How long? So that they were allowed to feel the inadequacy of their own strength and their own abilities. Do you know why some of you have to go through the same tests again and again and again and again? Because you're not through trusting in yourself. I've got this. I can handle this. I can get through this. When will you learn? No, you can't. No, you can't. Not on your own strength. Not on your own ability. You cannot. There they are. As I said, in many cases, seasoned sailors. And they know what to do in a storm. They've been on this sea many times. They've met with storms many times. They're working hard, but they're not getting anywhere. Because God is able to put you in a set of circumstances that you're forced to realize what you cannot do. And then they meet with Jesus in a way that grew not only their understanding of him, but grew their need for him, their understanding of their need for him, allowed to see the adequacy, the sufficiency of his ability. This is what he's able to do. Never a time were they outside his concern. Not for a moment were they outside his ability to reach them. As I said, he could have walked out in the first hour, first watch of the night, waits to the fourth. Never a time when what they were facing was more powerful than their shepherd. But they were made to know it was more powerful than them. Not more powerful than him, but more powerful than them. And so it is with us. Every test perfectly regulated. God knows the limits of our abilities. God knows the limits of our obedience, our ability to obey. He knows it all so that every test you face, there's a way to pass it if you'll trust him. Every test, not only perfectly regulated, personally regulated, Jesus watching over every element of it. Every test lovingly regulated, he loves you. Every test, a shepherding instrument, he is shepherding you through the things he has sent you into. And there is no test that is able to dislodge us from his love, from his perfect care and wisdom over our lives. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? How would that change your perspective of what you're going through right now?
whoever I'm talking to, that you're right in the middle of something that you wish would stop. Do you believe this? Which brings me to my third, final lesson. That is, this was a particularly helpful plan for the development of future disciples. A God-ordained plan for those disciples, perfectly regulated plan for the development of those disciples, but a perfectly helpful, particularly helpful plan for the people hearing me this morning. Think about how this miracle serves us. Puts Jesus on display, doesn't it? That's what we need. We need to see him, hear him, know him, trust him as the son of God. You'll never be able to walk away now from this day forward in your life. If you could have ever said it before, you can't say it today. You can never walk away and say, I've never seen evidence that Jesus was the son of God. Well, here's your evidence. So the Lord knows for future disciples, this is what men and women and young people need to hear. You need to know who walked on this earth 2,000 years ago. You need to know he was someone who could walk on the water like he could walk on the ground because he made it all and is Lord over it all. God came to this earth that he made and walked among us to save us from our sins. Jesus is the son of God. But this test also puts us on display and we need to know who we are, to really take hold of Jesus for who he is. We need to know who we are. Charles Spurgeon, preaching from this text, made the point that you and I often treat Jesus like a phantom. The storms, they're real to us. The water churning around us, that's real to us. The danger, I mean, I might lose my life. That's real to us. The insecure place we're standing, the creaking boat about to be burst apart by the sea. That's real to us. But Jesus, our helper, present in the moment, seems like a ghost, seems like a phantom. There we are, full of terror, anxiety, fear in the midst of our circumstances, as if Jesus isn't there when he is. Dear brother, dear sister, I want you to know that today, whatever you're going through, Jesus is there. But is he as real to you right now in your difficulty as your difficulties are? Or are you seeing him like a phantom? Charles Spurgeon said this, some of the richest comforts are lost to us for want of clear perception. What consolation could be greater to the tempest-tossed disciples than to know their master was present? and to see him manifestly revealed as Lord of sea as well as land. Yet because they did not discern him clearly, they missed the incomparable consolation. What is worse, at times, the dimness of our perception will even turn the rarest consolation into the source of fear. Jesus has come, and in his coming, the sun of their joy has risen but they do not perceive it to be Jesus. And therefore, thinking it to be a phantom, they are filled with alarm and cry out in dread. Let me just stop there and maybe put a little substance to the poetry because I think what he's describing is, you know, dear ones, there are times that the way Jesus has ordained to help us is not the way we would choose. 
So there we are in the middle of our trouble, and we're wondering where Jesus is. Has he shown up yet? Well, he's there. He's already offering to you the very help you need, but you don't want help that way. So that your greatest help has become your greatest dread, something distasteful to you. He goes on to say, he who was their best friend, they were as much afraid of as though he had been their arch enemy. Christ walking on the wave should have put all fear to rest, but instead thereof they mistake him for a phantom appearing amidst the storm, foreboding darker ill. They were filled with dismay by that which ought to have lifted them up with exultation. Oh, the benefit of the heavenly eye salve by which the eye is cleared. May the Holy Spirit anoint our eyes therewith. Oh, the excellence of faith which like the telescope brings Christ near to us and let us see him as he is. Oh, the sweetness of walking near to Christ and knowing him with an assured, confident, clear knowledge. For this would give us comforts which now we miss and at once remove from us distresses which today unnecessarily afflict us. Close quote. And I do pray that for you. I pray that for you. That God would grant you clear eyes. That you would see your situation with biblical faith. That it would be like a telescope which would make Jesus no longer appear to you like a phantom but bring him right near to your situation. That you would recognize you're not where you are by accident. Not as long in it as you've been by accident, but someone who loves you perfectly, faithfully, and forever, if you know him as Lord and Savior, has you right where you are. And there are lessons that you will learn where you are that you would not learn anywhere else. But he doesn't leave you there to learn them alone. He is there as your helper so that if you'll stop refusing his means and wanting to choose some other way and just take hold of him, you'll find he is altogether sufficient for anything you and I have to walk through. We see Jesus and we see us and we need him. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you for your faithfulness to us, your weak people who are your people only because of your mercy and pity and grace and love. Thank you for our strong Savior who altogether answers for our right standing with you. His blood answers for our sins. His righteousness answers for our acceptance. Thank you that even as we pray, he intercedes for us always at your right hand. Thank you for the blessed Holy Spirit who indwells us. And even we don't know what to pray, he intercedes for us in ways that are not heard. Thank you, Lord, that you shepherd us faithfully. That sometimes you even send us into places that are hard for us and leave us there a while because you know what we need. And above all, what we need in any and every circumstance is you We think we know what we need, but we don't know. 
For if we only knew what we need, we would know that what we need above all in any and every circumstance is to see Jesus, to know him, to love him, to follow him, to trust him. So Lord, strengthen us, your people, to trust our shepherd this day in whatever circumstances we are in. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.